This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the second installment of UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Stories series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have Randy Motos with us here tonight. Randy is truly a serial entrepreneur um, and an innovator. Uh, he, he and his company have pioneered the green payment technologies. And we're going to talk about kind of where, where they started with the payment, with payment processing, where they are now, and where they're going in the future. Because as we all know, uh, it's changing um, daily. Money is becoming a thing of the past. Entrepreneurship started early for Randy. He was, uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs out there, selling things like his own artwork, selling wood scraps, uh, selling things in his front yard, lemonade. Um, and he brought that entrepreneurship with him to college. So he started his first company um, in his dorm room with his uh, co-founders here at UCSB. Uh, and, and he did that while he was pursuing his uh, computer science major. We're going to talk about the new venture competition and some of the other things he did while he was here. So the founders of Pay Junction, they took their idea and they built it into a company that processes over $4 billion of transactions annually. They have two offices, over 100 employees, and they support over 3,000 independent sales reps all over the U.S. That's quite an enterprise. Uh, and innovation is still at the heart of what Pay Junction does. They build technology that streamlines business, businesses' payment processing systems and reduces the environmental toll across an entire industry. So all those receipts and paperwork and all that crap from the past, uh, Pay Junction is helping all of that go away. Let's give Randy a warm welcome to our stage. Wow, I feel like I read that really quickly. <laughs> you did a great oh, job. Adrenaline. I'm so nervous. <laughs> um, but I did mention that you're, you were a childhood entrepreneur. Yeah. I share that yeah. uh, in my background, too. So were there some of those? I mentioned a couple of things you did. The wood scrap was my personal favorite. Mm. Were there other things that you did, um, maybe a little bit older as a teenager, that, that you remember fondly, maybe you learned a little bit from? Or, what, when you think back on those, on those things, what, what stands out to you? I think that, <clears throat> I honestly think that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is in your blood yeah you're born with it it's something that kind of like you need to do it you seek it out all the time so everything from lemonade stands to like you said wood scraps any other any type of business that i could think of doing i would try to do Mm -hmm. but more importantly i actually came here with the intention of starting a business so when i came here to ucsb i networked i tried to meet the smartest people i could i knew that i wasn't you can't do it all, right? It takes a village to build a business, so you need to collect people along the way to make it happen. So while I was in computer science, while it was the four years that I was here, I tried to meet the best and the brightest and uh, collect them along the way. So you are absolutely singing for my hymnal. The class that I, that I taught today, actually, we ended the class um, encouraging the students to <coughs> curate their network. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it's fine to have, you know, these, you know, kind of care, carefree friends, and I have those friends still in my life. I have plenty of those. I have plenty of those. But it also <laughs> makes sense to start being proactive about curating um, the rest of your friendships. And, and, and I think students have a hard time with the word networking because it just feels like maybe things that adults do or feels fake or not, not authentic. That's not it at all. It's just really going out there and finding like-minded people that you, know, that you feel the same kind of passions that they feel, and then who knows what those passions I take you. So let's talk a little bit about um, your co-founders and how mm-hmm. did you guys, how did that initial combination come together? I th- yeah, actually, you can, when you said like-minded, that kind of triggered a thought in my mind. You actually want 
different people than yourselves, right? You don't want mirror images of the same people. So like-minded like, in, in the, in the like sense minded of entrepreneurial, in the passion, yeah. to start something. But you're right. Yeah. Diversity of thought. That's right. Diversity of thought is really important. So I have three different. Uh, there's three founders of the company: <clears throat> William Skidmore, Eric Wernicke, and myself. And we're all three completely different people. Mm -hmm. uh, William, William Skidmore uh, graduated high school valedictorian, was top engineering uh, uh, computer science, was absolutely blew everything out of the water. While I was strong in computer science, I wanted to go to art school. My parents said no, so they, that I needed to come here to do <laughs> to, uh, engineering. So like, uh, my dream was to kind of like um, do movies and other things like that. And while I was here at UCSB, at night I worked for Paramount Studios. I worked, uh, we did the Star Trek movies, did other stuff at night while I was doing my computer wow. science degree, and I got to taste that. Right. But I still needed to do my own thing. So I have the art and the communication and the sales piece. William is the very strong computer science engineering, and Eric, who's also computer science, all three of us are computer science, is unbelievable in operations and structure and process. And the three different people put together make the magic of what happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna jump back to what you said about film. We had um, uh, Eaton Abaz was here. He created AdSense along with his brother and his cousin, some other, lots of other people. Um, sold it to Google. He thought he wanted to make movies when he was younger. Mm -hmm. Took a couple years off, did a hiatus, and made some movies. And mm -hmm. then decided that he didn't like making movies. But, but he had fun doing it, but he decided that's not his career. Yeah. Have you thought about that? Is that in your future, actually going back and going full circle? No, I think I, I accomplished that while I was here. So I, I worked literally from, I would get off school at like 6, you know, like we'll start work at 6, and I'd work the graveyard shift from mm. 6 till 3, 4 in the morning, working on post-production, rendering, and everything else like that. Right. Dailies, cuts, right. and stuff like that. And I got my taste in the industry. It's a, it's a really tough industry, and it was beautiful to be part of that artful and creative process, but I put that to bed. I think in the future, I'd like to do something like what you do. I'd like to come back and teach, I think, for me in the future. Yeah. Well, I think... I think Good managers, good CEOs, good entrepreneurs are teachers. I mean, effectively, you don't do it by yourself. You got to bring people along with you. That's right. And I think there's, I just think that's part of being a, an entrepreneur, successful right. one at least. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to your co-founders then. So I'd love to hear a little bit how you guys coalesced and how you divvied up the work once you actually started working together. Sure, I think that's great. So we met in Cecil in the computer lab, and anybody who's a computer science student knows in here that you pretty much live in those labs, right? <laughs> so you, you make uh, quick friends. You know, you spend a lot of time together. You're kind of in the trenches going through it all, and uh, you, you form some very deep uh, bonds and relationships, and then we met in uh, going through that. I think there was, if I, I'm going to guess at the numbers here, so don't hold them to me, but I want to say there was somewhere a little short of 400 people that started in our CS class, mm. and the graduating, actual graduating class was under 100, I want to say like 60. So the attrition in computer science during that time was extremely high, and the people that made it through it were really tight. Because yep. they've been through a lot together. It's still pretty high. I think I don't think the numbers are quite that severe. Yeah. But the bar to get in is incredible, right? To, yeah. to, I would never be able to get into the school at this yeah. point. I don't want to date you, but culture. So I may have this wrong, but um, my understanding is the first thing you guys did, so before the new venture competition, was you took a outsource like an outsource coding job for a financial company? That's right. Is that right? Yeah. So before the before the competition actually it might have and been. And you in your after. junior year. This is senior year. By my notes, it was junior year. I think we might have started junior year, senior year. I, the timing, this is 20 years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so talk about, we always had something going. So like um, right, right. night jobs, was doing the movie thing. When the movie thing was done, uh, we knew that we wanted to work together. And it was actually post, I think, after the um, business comp, uh, competition. We knew we wanted to work together. We had to figure out how to get seed money. Um, we didn't want to raise it. It was um, kind of the economy was changing. Um, I'm old, but you guys all know in 2000, this thing called the dot-com bust. Uh, I graduated um, literally when the entire bottom fell out of the engineering um, 
community, yeah. the tech market, right. period. March, so, March of 2000, and you, you graduated go. in 2000, right? Yeah, so the computer science degree was probably not even worth the paper it was printed on when I graduated, unfortunately. Um, so we had to be savvy about how we were going to make this thing work. So we took a, a software contract with a, a company who was uh, revolutionizing at the time auto lending. So all, a lot of you have probably bought a car in here. And you go and you get, uh, they run your credit, they give you your APR and the, the finance score. Back in the days in 2000, uh, auto, um, <laughs> auto sales companies had a binder that was this big from all the different banks, and it just had spreadsheets on it, right? And they'd flip through, and they look at your FICO score, and they'd mm-hmm. tell you what your rates were. Nothing was automated. It was all paper process. So this company picked us up, and um, senior year, uh, we wrote all the software that tapped into the credit bureaus, did all the systems, automated that entire book, and automated the lending process for, for cars. We did that basically in 2000 before anybody else had done it. And then we decided that we never wanted to write software for anybody else right, ever again. Right. They're really complicated people, so we decided that we were going to do our own thing. So we took all of that money and we bootstrapped into what is now Pay Junction today. So but what I like about that story is, is what I also recommend to my students is be a yes. It sounds like you guys were a yes. In other words, this opportunity came up. It wasn't really exactly what you wanted to do. That's right. But you said, yeah, we'll do it. It was a way to get money. It was a way to get experience, a way to get credibility. That's you right. learned a little bit about the financial services market. A lot. Yeah. And you learned you didn't want to do that for a living. Right? Yeah. It could have come out the other side and said, we kind of like writing code th- you know, for third parties. Let's do that. Totally. Which would have been fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, you decided you didn't want to write software for other people. That was, that was important. And then didn't you guys start a ticketing solution? You went to Coachella and you... Yeah, so the, the first round was not pay junction. So we, we got in, we did the, the lending system for auto, and then the first iteration of what we did is we built a company called presaleticketing.com. Uh, just like you know any online ticketing company did except 20 years ago, so this is a new thing. And it was will call lists, as ever, most of you guys have all gone to events. You have a will call list, you go to the door, your tickets are there. Back in the days in 2000, before handheld devices and smartphones, a will call list at Coachella was like a stack of paper like that big. And if you had to get there for like three hours before and wait in the line, while well, they went through, checked your ID, and went out through the well call list. In, and if you guys have ever been to Coachella, it's hot, right? So you're sitting out there before you get in, waiting to get in, no one's checking the line. So um, we built the ticketing company and then saw that experience and then looked at that and thought, well, we can, we can do something better than that. So at the time, there was these things called Palm Pilots, little Palm Pilots that had an ante- antenna with wireless They're on They're in it. the Smithsonian now. Yeah, they, we actually have them at the office. We need to put them in a glass case. <laughs> the precursor to the iPhone and the Palm, really old. Anyway, so um, we found a company that made a swiper. We found the pi- Palm Pilot. We found the Palm Pilot that did a wireless connection. And we made them so that the will call list could be downloaded to the Palm Pilot. You could swipe your IDs, and it would tell you your ticket. Mm. Now, everybody expects that this, these days, but this had never been done before back in 2000. So we built that company where we were successful. We scaled it up. We started to get revenue going, opened it up offices in Hollister right across from the Hamburger Habit, nice. and uh, got everything up and moving. And then we looked at the market and the segment, and there's only so many people that sell tickets, right? So like you were constrained of where you could go with it. And interestingly enough, I was at a barbecue here in town, and there was a CEO of a bank payment company that was there, and he knew about what we were building, and he asked me, um, point blank, he's like, hey, that thing swipes, could you make it process credit cards? And I had absolutely no idea, but I told him yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's being a yes. That's being a yes. And uh, so he, on the spot, literally said, I'm going to write a check for, for uh, X number of units. I will sell every single one of them. Give me this product, and I'll sell it. So we hunkered down, we pivoted, we took the core technology that we had, 
and uh, he connected us into the banking networks, and we pivoted from the, the ticketing and the swiping and the will call into what was then mobile payments. We basically built Square before they were Square 20 years ago, and they sold the hell out of it. They uh, ended up selling that company for $20 million, uh, and it was a, a company that basically resold our product. Um, and then we kind of moved up the chain. The product evolved over the last 20 years that we've been going. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to take the first student's question in a second, but again, I like that you were a yes on that. I mean, every, you know, if you look at it, if you look at when opportunity quote knocks for entrepreneurs, it's often that sort of situation. It's sure. a networking event. He had his personal pitch down. So when this person said, you know, what's going on in your business, you didn't stumble around and you said, here's what's going on with my business. And you gave him a very succinct response. And then he said, can you do this? And you said, yes, because you knew that you would figure it out. That's right. You weren't ripping him off. You weren't screwing him over. You were like, yeah, we can do that. And when you said, yeah, we can do that, you meant we will do that. We will not, we will not fail. That's right. We delivered on both ends. And uh, he's been successful. Their second company, I think, was just valued at $750 million. And kind of leapfrog and they still resell our, our, our product. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very cool. We'll take the first student's question. Yeah, so I have a two-part question. Uh, so what resources at UCSB uh, or in the Santa Barbara area did you leverage in order to start Pay Junction? And then also, what resources do you recommend that current UCSB students utilize in their entrepreneurial endeavors? Sure. Um, I mean, the, well, the first resource is the people. The most important resource at this school are your peers. Um, unless you want to go out and on your own, and not many people can, like we've been talking about today, um, the most valuable resource is meeting as many people and as many professors and uh, making as many connections as you can. Uh, in terms of like new resources that weren't here, we started the, the company in an apartment. So we were on, on Barco del Norte. I lived on Posado. Um, and we just kind of worked out of the different apartments and made everything happen. We have these really funny old pictures of me sitting there with like two cell phones and a foldable <laughs> table and all sorts of different funny stuff. But um, things have changed, right? So now I was at the ribbon cutting for the garage incubator. You guys have this beautiful facility that basically takes like-minded people, puts them in an open space, and allows you guys to incubate together and accesses the resources of uh, this place. And I don't know how much they raised and spent on there, but the place looks beautiful. If we would have had that when I was here, I would have been there pretty much all, all day long, although our, our apartment was a lot of fun, too. <laughs> Friday nights and Saturday nights are a little crazy, but... But it's gonna that that incubator is gonna be. I mean, it's already having an impact. But with the new venture competition, that'll be home for some of the companies that come out of it. That's the problem that a lot of schools have is yep. they have these great programs. They get students really excited. They have maybe something like a new venture competition, and then what? Then there's That's like right. this gap um, where you're not quite far enough along to raise money, but you don't want to stop. And so our hope is that the incubator will, will be that home. It's a perfect bridge. So I mean, we had to scrounge up our own funds. You know, um, get office space. Get, get, get well. <laughs> get foldable tables, pay for the extra internet. Like we had to, that jump from the incubator to our first offices in Hollister is what's now built here. Yeah. And it's a, a safe place for you guys to have like-minded people to launch. And I yep. think it's really, really, really awesome. Yeah. So anybody watching this, and I know people have come to UCSB just from, from seeing these videos, it's getting better. Like we even, you know, yeah. that's a resource we didn't have last year. We're just going to keep adding to our resources so that if you really want to come here and start a company, we're going to try to help you make it successful. Yep. So did you do pay, uh, pay Junction at the New Venture Competition, or was it the ticketing company, or what, what were you pitching? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. Um, so it was the, the first thing was a professional services company, probably why we lost. It really wasn't innovative. It was just basically around professional services, around doing the contract work, which led us to the, right. the auto lending. Uh, we executed under that business plan, got our first contract, found the funding, pivoted into the ticketing company, and then into payments. 
So the business plan was actually written as like a professional services company. Got it. Which looking looking at Inogen probably wasn't. <laughs> Changing the world yeah. of medicine, yeah. services business. Exactly. Uh, but it led you to where you are today. And that's what I always tell my students. That's is, right. It's not a linear path. It never is. Business so is start. never. Business you start and you'll figure it out. I mean, there's a reason that the term agile is so prevalent in, in the world of business today. You've got to be able to pivot. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to react to the market. And, and you've got to understand that your, your first idea is probably not going to be the exact one you're always going to execute on. Right. And be open to that and be, be willing to change it. Yes. So you mentioned that um, you got your funding for your company initially was from customer dollars, which is my favorite source of funding. No dilution. It's perfect. Zero. Zero. So you bootstrapped your business. Um, there's obviously pluses and minuses to bootstrapping. There's pluses and minuses to, to VC, private equity, sure. all of them. Um, but when you, and I understand you guys ran up some credit card. Um, this is back in the day of those zero interest credit card oh, offers. Yeah, um, yeah we, so we didn't raise any money from family. We didn't, we did it all ourselves. So just the initial contracts and then our personal credit cards. And we had pretty much every 99 cent menu memorized in town. Yeah. I've always thought about writing a thank you letter to Taco Bell for like their 99 cent menu. <laughs> have you in their commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would literally, like, we would go from day to day on the 99-cent menus all the way through town and make it work and then just try to be as frugal as possible. It took us a few years to get the, you know, the revenue streams up and then kept building from there. And uh, people in this audience watching and, and here with us may not remember, or may not be, they may be too young, but there was a whole period where credit card companies would, you would get, like, five a week, like a, like a credit card offer, and they would actually have a credit card in there. And what people would do is they would roll, they would run up charges on that credit card, and then when they got another one for the next week, they would roll those charges onto that one. Yeah, we and did you that. could roll it forever. <laughs> we did that, yeah. 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 I, I do remember a few years in, like, having a panic attack and looking at it and, like, oh, my God, like, what am I going to do if we can't get this whole thing going? But you have to uh, have a lot of faith in the idea and a lot of uh, faith in the people that you're working with and understand that, like, um, you know, good things don't always come easy. No. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that strategy because if, 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 the, if no. the music stops and you don't have a chair, you know, and you might yeah. have to file bankruptcy. But we gamble. We gamble. You, didn't, you always had a chair. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to the bootstrapping. So, again, they all have pluses and minuses. Um, what do you think you gave up? And would you do it again? So certainly there was probably things you could have done faster or differently or sooner. What, what are those things that come to mind, and then would you do it the same way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, okay, so with – Funding and bootstrapping, in my mind, goes two different ways. So with funding comes liquidity events. You take money, you need to exit, and you need to show your investors money, and you're going to have to have a time frame from that. And they're going to want a multiple in, let's call it three to five years, right? So it causes you to build the culture of your company a little bit differently. You need to be focused around profit, around rapid growth, and you need to meet the expectations of your investors, right? Um, I think the benefit for us of bootstrapping is we are able to take a different uh, long-term approach to the business where we focus on long-term relationships instead of short-term profit. It allows us to build our culture in the way that we not only treat our internal employees but our customers in a different way. And in the landscape of financial services and banks who are really, really not doing a great job in the ethics game these days, to be in a place where we we don't have to answer to these uh, outside investors about profitability and we can make long-term plays for the benefit of the people that are involved with us, both from an employee and a customer level, allows us to execute the way, the business the way that we want it. And I think that's, I think that's key. It's, the def- your definition of success is your definition of success. That's right. And so there's nothing wrong with, with the strategy of taking investor money and just understand what that entails. 
and understand that that's going to change your definition of success because they're going to want an outcome. They're going to want to return their money. That's right. If that fits with yours, then perfectly, then perfect. But if it doesn't, then you're going to be in conflict with those folks because they're going to want their money back. The mission statement of Pay Junction, the very first line says to build something that lasts longer than us. So in, very few people are trying to build generational tech companies, something, a brand that lasts longer than you know, the next flip and the next sale. Um, we're in it for the long haul to try and do that. And the second part of the mission statement is to, again, focus on long-term relationships over short-term profits. So those two things paired together with the bootstrapping create a culture where we can control that. Yep. So I'm going to go to the next student's question in just a second. But I'm going to touch upon your, your, the comment about the foregoing near-term profits and creating long-term relationships. And obviously, I subscribe to that. I'm not criticizing that strategy at all. It's worked for you, and I think it's, it's, it's the same kind of strategy I, I I like to instill in my businesses. But I'm curious, have you ever felt like it kind of backfired on you? Like maybe you played with a bad actor where you, you felt like they took advantage of that or they, they didn't live up to the spirit of what you were trying to get out of that relationship? Well, I mean, our business is about, so we're in a low margin business. It takes a lot of businesses and billions of dollars to generate revenue. So there's no, not a single contract that wouldn't necessarily impact us like that. Right. But I think that the, the trade-off that you're looking for is time. Right, so like when bootstrapping, we're it, it takes much longer to to, to right. do everything. So you need to make sacrifices on a personal level, on a professional level. And listen, I have friends that are serial entrepreneurs that take the money and flip them every five years, and they're super successful. And they love that new build and flip. And that's a certain type of personality, right? I'm a people person, and I want to build like a legacy and something that lasts longer. And that's what uh, I see in terms of value for the whole thing. Right. And both are totally viable and awesome ways to be entrepreneurs. It's just the way that we're cut. So, so you get, not only do you have to have your definition of success to find yeah. your investors, if you have them, and your co-founders, because yeah. that's where the conflicts are. It's like a marriage. That's right. Where the, peop- where the two people either grow apart. That happens, right? That's legit. Sure. But sometimes it's, they just never really sat down and made sure that they were compatible with their long-term goals. Like, yeah. what is success in this relationship? Yeah. And those things change over the years. Oh, for well. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, we'll take the next student's question. Hi. Hey. Um, so an EMV-ready terminal helps prevent possible fraudulent activities due to the use of the chip instead of a magnetic strip. That's right. uh-huh. And But since EMV certifications can get backed up, the smart terminal helps to speed up the process. And I understand the smart terminal can speed up these certifications, but what is the ultimate advantage that the smart terminal has over competing technologies? Sure. So, so, just, so the question yeah. about your smart terminal, just to yeah. be clear. I gave a little preface for everybody that doesn't know what we do. So this terminal that you guys are seeing back here is what we call a smart terminal. Um, you guys have probably seen them all over the place. Um, the chips we're talking about, everybody's gotten used to those. You put them in, they take forever. Some are fast, some are slow. Um, as a software company, for any of you entrepreneurs that are out there that are going to build something, um, if you build a software system, you're going to need to take payments, whether it's either online or in person. And what PayJunction does is we enable technology for other companies to um, add payment processing to their offering, right? So I'll give you an example. One of the partnerships we just finished was uh, with EasyYVet. It's a veterinary hospital software. They service uh, some of the largest vet hospitals in the entire country. Um, They needed to be able to support digital signature capture and this type of transaction processing. And there are competitors to us that that offer similar technology. But on a technical level, uh, a lot of them require drivers. So you have to install a piece of software down onto the computer. That piece of software talks to the terminal. And there's this kind of this chain of all this stuff that needs to happen. It brings their uh, computers into compliance without getting too technical. It's just a patchwork and a big mess, right? So the reason that we're successful with this is this is a cloud-controlled piece of hardware. 
There's no software drivers installed. It basically just plugs into the internet and you talk to it via a RESTful API. And it allows the software companies to stay out of scope of PCI. It's rapid development. You're up and running in literally like 15 minutes. And it just limits the scope of uh, what you need to do to enable payments. We want our partners to focus on what they do well. In the case of uh, EasyVet, that's right. veterinary hospitals. And we want to take care of the payments. Yeah, I mean, it could obviously have a huge event. Maybe not in veterinarian. I mean, everyone wants to get out of there. But, but in a high-volume retail environment, I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. money, right? If somebody's standing there waiting for that credit card to process. Every second is money. Yeah, every second is money. Um, so your sales model is, is a little bit unique. I've had a number of students from my classes. I think some, there might be a couple in here um, that have worked with you um, uh, in various capacities, most of them in sales. What, maybe just explain a little bit how you leverage the 3,000 independent reps that we talked about. Um, and then I'd love to hear, like, why is it, what is, what is the nature of that network in your product that makes it work so that we can infer, like, what wouldn't work? Because obviously every solution doesn't work for every potential product. Sure. Okay. So a network of about 3,000 independent contractors that represent the product. Um, and we've built that team up over the, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years we've been running the business. Um, the type of people that do this are either like full-time, this is what they do, they go find companies to see benefit in this. It could be also just like a web developer who builds websites and needs to enable payment processing, needs a partner to set that up. It could be a software company that uh, partners and does exactly what you just asked about. We have a ton of software companies that connect to us, wire up these different cloud systems, and then we need to service their clients. So it's a really um, diverse mix of resellers out there and their intentions of uh, enabling payment processing kind of vary all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then from, uh, we have an internal recruitment department, which is staffed by an amazing team of UCSB students. It's a really great way to get into their, like, their first touch of sales career. And we've had some amazing people go uh, in different kind of paths throughout our company. And they're uh, locating potential uh, people that would resell the product, find value in it. They also might be a consultant, a CPA, someone else that has other kind of business connections and means where they want mm -hmm. to have payment processing as part of their toolkit. Right. Right. Okay. So it's so it goes from classic resellers. It might be have they might have a bag full of all kinds of products that they're reselling, and it might be something very specifically. The only thing they resell. That's is, right. Is what you guys are up to. Yeah. Okay. Well, one, one thing that's interesting about this um, the, dis, the distributed model is a lot of companies that bootstrap go too early. Like they think that's going to be their solution. Mm. Um, I don't know when you guys started rolling out the OEM strategy or the um, reseller strategy, but but you have to figure it out yourself first. Yeah. Like you have to figure out what are the objections, how do you really sell this thing, because a reseller won't figure it out for you. Well, I mean... Did you, did you find that to be the case? No, we try to target... Um, we, we do target salespeople. So the fundamentals, they have a, a solid sales background. Well, right now, you guys... I'm talking about in the early days, when you guys were trying to figure out, we're bootstrapping, we can't hire you know, a bunch of salespeople... Did you, I would assume you guys had to figure it out yourself, and then you started sharing that knowledge with these, these independent folks. Um, yeah, I mean, we did. Um, we, we built the product. We knew what the value propositions were. We, took, we, we found strong salespeople who, once educated on the value propositions, bridged the gap. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Right. Yeah, I mean, build good technology, understand your market segment, um, understand the value propositions, operational ROI, and let good salespeople do what they do. So the products that I've seen not work in that in a sales uh, channel like that would be things maybe they're just so overly technical yeah. that the guy the person's just going to raise their hands and go look I don't work for the company I don't yeah, know yeah. so I think that's a sign that that um, what you guys have built is easy to use it's easy to explain it's easy to install because typically that doesn't work through a channel it just breaks down you might find a few people that you know get it and, and work hard to figure it out 
Most people won't. It needs to be plug and play. We call it Fisher Price. Uh, elegant, um, kind of well designed, super easy to use. Right. So, so we all know about the PayPal mafia. Like they've gone off and started a bunch of different companies. We have a little one here in town for a company that I was involved with um, that we sold to Citrix, which you know, I think Right Scale Eucalyptus Appfolio Logic Monitor to yep. name four, but there's more. Sure. Have you guys? Um, have you seen this at, at Pay Junction? Have you had entrepreneurially minded people that spun out and did their own thing? Um, if so, have you been? How do you how do you kind of support that entrepreneurial vigor? Yeah, I mean, just from internally. Um, yeah, we've had no, no one's hit it out of the park, but you know, we nurture um, anybody. Like we we've launched people into pretty much all the major companies up in San Francisco. We've had people independently engineers leave us and independently start their own. Um, their own software systems. Um, I take a lot of great pride in that, actually. Like the the success of people past their experience with Pay Junction is just as important right. as their experience with us. Right, that makes sense. I always did too. I think early in my career, um, I had a couple awkward exits from companies where I felt like the the company could have could have congratulated me as opposed to being angry at me yeah. for leaving. That's right. And so I always had that. I always try to overcompensate for that for what I felt was, was, was the wrong way to handle it. Yeah. And when people come to me and they say, you know, John, you know, it's been a great run. I appreciate working with you, but I'm going to go start XYZ. I love that. Yeah. I feel like they gain skills and sometimes I would you know, do what I could to support them if there were things I could do or else I would just cheer them on to the side. It makes me proud, to be honest with you. I think that that type of growth in terms of the people that we work with is probably one of the most important currencies mm-hmm. that I value personally. So. Do you guys have a, an official, um, I know, you know, Citrix for a while had an incubator where you could join that incubator if you're part of the company. Um, there's a company in L.A. that I'm an investor in. They, they encourage people to moonlight. I'm not sure I would go quite that far. Everybody at that company had two email addresses. They had the company and then their own side gig. Have you guys ever, ever thought about doing that or you haven't quite gotten to that point. No, we haven't gotten there. I struggle with it because I like the fact that you're letting people be entrepreneurial and they don't have to hide it. They don't have yeah. to do it under the table. But at the same time, maybe it's too disruptive. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think more about that. We, we haven't started a program like anything like that. Okay. Very cool. We'll take the next student's question. Um, what were some innovations that Pay Junction has implemented and thought would be a great idea, but the innovation ended up failing? And how did your company learn from the failure? Sure. Okay, so let's talk about the payments. So the Palm Pilot that I told you guys about with the antenna on it and the swiping was way ahead of its time. So this is before everybody had smartphones. These Palm Pilots were expensive. You had to pay for the wireless signals. Mostly business people, right? Mostly business people, and we were way too far ahead of the curve. It was literally the exact same technology that Square executes today, but it was too far ahead of the market. And what we found was that the type of businesses using those mobile payments were too small. They'd be doing like a couple thousand dollars a month, just like Square kind of targets these micro merchants. That's where those solutions made sense. And it didn't scale us where we needed to go. So we pivoted away from that. And we moved that into the kind of one of the facets of the program or the the application and then built out a mature system that serviced mid-market and larger businesses so that we could scale the company in a better way. So one of the things I admire uh, about, about Pay Junction is you're building enterprise software. You're building a lot of it is behind the scenes. I mean, this is not this manifests itself, but a lot of the stuff you build is behind the scenes. Yet you've you've really 
you've really made it part of your culture and part of your mission. Um, I think at one point you said you want to design products like job did, Jobs did at Apple, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just part of your mantra. Yeah. It, design first, yeah. Design first, yeah. And I think it just flows through the company. As we said, this this you know plug-and-play approach is difficult to do if you're taking shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you guys tried to do at the beginning, or, or you just couldn't do it at the beginning because you had to hack things to get them out? How disciplined have you been on that over the over time? It's at our core. Yeah. I mean, like, a user experience, the Fisher-Price, simple and beautiful. Like, we want to look at it. So when I... When we've done something right, like I, I look at it and I get this warm and fuzzy feeling. So like when I've done something beautiful and we got a piece of code or a UI or something else like that, I just can't stop looking at it. It just it makes me feel right. And then going through the design process and the software process, that's one of the most fun things that we do. Um, yeah, so it, like um, we're very user and design centric. Do you are you still involved in the in the in that? part of the design heavily yeah so um, we have an amazing which design is interesting because jobs never really gave that, all the stuff he was doing as a global ceo he, he kept that part of yeah. his responsibility 9 a.m every morning i have my design meeting call where my entire design team and i review everything that we're doing um, from every aspect of it and it's probably my favorite hour of the entire day yeah. very cool so you guys have a very high rating on Glassdoor um and a you know a decent number of ratings so it's not like based on a very small sample size um, I think it's when I looked, it was four and a, four point eight out of five. So it's almost it's almost as high as you can get. Um, and you personally have um, well over hundred reviews, ninety eight percent approval. Again, I don't know how you ever get a hundred of anything in life. What do you guys do to? And I'm asking this question selfishly because I have CEOs that ask me this, like John, how can I do this better? So what do you do to proactively monitor besides Glassdoor? Like, what do you do internally to monitor? how satisfied people are, um, as well as to manage employees' happiness. Yeah, um, so I mean, to put that into perspective, it was kind of interesting. So there's 740,000 businesses on Glassdoor, and Pay Junction was ranked uh, number 29 in the whole country. And I'm not, I, listen, this comes down to an entire village, and actually Mia, who's back there, and Amy, who's here today, we have an entire team of people are dedicated to recruiting and making sure that we hire slow, fire fast. We want to make sure that we build a composition of the team that's got a family atmosphere. Like I said, we, we've, we now have the luxury of focusing on long-term relationships over short-term profit, not just for our customers, but our employees. We really care about their culture. We want you guys to have fun. We want you guys to grow. We invest everything that we can into that, and that shows. And that's highly due to the team that we've invested in. So you started to describe the culture. Just give us a little bit more, a few more adjectives on that. And, um, I was going to use a couple examples, but I don't want to. What, how else would you describe it? So, if I were, if you were trying to explain this to me as a new, as a new employee, work hard, play hard. Yeah, I mean. Um, so then, what if I was, what if I was a tenacious employee, and I said, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean. So, what does play hard mean to you? So, uh, well, I'm, I'm so, I just graduated for some people. For some people, you don't want to know. Yeah. For some people, it's surfing. For some people, it's think it's about work-life balance, right? So, we want you to come in. We want you to grow. We want you to take the time to decompress. We want you to enjoy this beautiful place in Santa Barbara that we live. I think one of the greatest gifts that we have is running this company out of here yep. and enjoying this town and making sure that we're part of the community and the culture and making sure that you have enough time and energy to balance that work life and enjoy this, this area that we're in. Do you, do you do things, um, do you organize events so that, you know, like go to the Channel Islands and do some cave uh, uh, sea kayaking? Yeah. Do you actually organize things like that as a company? Yeah, they did a paddle boarding thing. We tried to, they, they've got events going on all the time. They did uh, puzzle box rooms a couple weeks ago. Mia's always the, the bastion of kind of finding all this kind of fun stuff. Uh, for everybody to do. Team building is important. And we've got to, like, again, enjoy this beautiful area that we live in. Right. Yeah. We are, we are very, very lucky. Yeah. 
Um, we'll take the next student's question. As uh, other other options like Venmo and cryptocurrencies increase in popularity, mm -hmm. what are your uh, what are your thoughts on businesses accepting those kind of payments? Oh boy, we could talk cryptocurrency all night. Um, okay, so cryptocurrency hasn't reached um, kind of mass adoption yet, right? And when it does, Pay Junction will um, most likely be there to consider the payment processing of it. But to educate you guys a little bit about cryptocurrency, let's talk about three problems, why you can't use it everywhere. The first thing is the average um, Bitcoin, the, excuse me, the Bitcoin transaction time as of March in 2018 is 20 minutes to make a transaction authorized. So not many of you are going to sit at a retail location and wait 20 minutes for your, your, your Bitcoin transaction to be approved, right? So that means there's only certain situations where that, that thing works. Second thing is incentives. So let's say that, they, that we fix the speed problem, right? And um, you have a choice between your Bitcoin or your American Express rewards points where you get uh, free airline miles and everything else around it. And they're going to be, which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick the one with the rewards, right? Okay. So there's the problem of the rewards that need to be kind of bridged. And then the, fourth problem, the third problem is c consumer protection. So if you make a Bitcoin transaction, there's no one to call and complain. Like if you, you, know, you, you purchase something bad on your credit card, they don't deliver the product, something fails, you call the 800 number on the back of your card, they send you your money back, and the business has to fight to prove that they did you right, right? There is no such thing in a Bitcoin transaction. It's like handing someone money and never seeing them ever again. Venmo, Zelle, all these other ones, Bitcoin, all these uh, type of things have these same kind of uh, issues. So there's a right time and a right place for it. Um, people haven't cracked those key issues for mass adoption. So in the markets that we work in currently, we will focus on um, traditional payments, credit cards, ACH transactions, and the like. Yeah. So let's talk about crypto a little bit more. What, where do you see that evolving? I mean, I, I agree it's slow. There's no central. I mean, it's decentralized by definition. People have fixed the speed problem by centralizing it. So, okay. I mean, they, everybody's kind of cracked those different problems in different way, but it hasn't become ubiquitous yet. Where do you, so where do you see that playing in Pay Junction's future? Like, are you, you're waiting to a certain point where, it's, where there's more adoption? Are you, are, you, are you, I'm leading the witness here, are you looking at, at um, blockchain already? Because blockchain has a lot of potential, irrespective of what happens to Bitcoin and some of the other currencies. So we're a payment processor, not an issuer, right? So I don't have any interest in ICOs or creating currencies right, or anything else right, like that. Right. But if, if you know, we reach critical mass and people want to pay with that transaction, that's when Pay Junction will make the moves. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the question? Well, I was, I, I, so I'm, I'm interested if you're thinking about blockchain at all. So mm. I know you're not, you're not going to create a currency. But blockchain has, as you know, fundamental uses beyond um, its, its use in, in, uh, in managing currencies. Sure, shared ledgers. There's, there's exactly. All sorts of interesting do you applications. See, do you yeah. see that as, a, as an application in, in your business, or is it still just too nascent? You know, again, it's, it starts from the issuing. So the, the issuers, so Visa, MasterCard, the people who issue payments, or you know, BitPay or the other ones that, that kind of do that stuff, decide... Again, that reaches critical mass. We're the company that would accept it. So the blockchain really acquires to the accountability and the tracking of the transactions from the issuing end, uh, not necessarily on, I mean, it would be on our end for, for, for accepting it. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's yet to be seen. Like uh, when, when those three things are solved that I, that I had mentioned, yep. you know, we, we will reach critical mass around that. And if the government regulation doesn't try to pin it down, it, then will, it will be, it will be required to be part of the payment processing infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine the government will try to hold it back long past when they should, but yep. it'll happen anyway. Yeah. Um, do you have any prediction as to when you think 
those things will come together? You know, I've, I've been going out. I met and had dinner with the CEO of one of the larger payment processing uh, companies for crypto. And we, just, we had a really nice dinner at Holdren's here in town. We talked a lot about it. And we, we had that exact conversation that I just had right now. It's going to be slow going. Um, and it's going to take a little bit of time. But um, it's a massive movement, and you're going to have to keep a really close eye on it. Do you think it'll initially eat into kind of the Venmo market where it's person-to-person, peer-to-peer, kind of more of a trusted relationship? Like, I don't, you know, if I'm taking Venmo from you, I probably trust you at some level because I can't get my money back if you're, you know, screw me over. That's right. Do you think it'll move into that market first? Or? That's where it is right now. Yeah. I mean, you know. There's a lot of illicit things that happen on those transaction right. networks right. where a lot of right. most of the volume is. Yeah. Um, Silk Road. I mean, yeah. So there's, you know, anonymity in transactions breeds money laundering and some other things that, that just aren't, we aren't part of. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like I said, it's gonna be interesting to see where it goes. Let's let's get back a little bit to culture and hiring young people again. Some companies do it well. Some people, some companies just aren't geared to doing it well. Hmm. Um, you talked about the culture, you talked about events, things like that. What about, do you have any programs or, or how would you describe what you do to ensure that these inexperienced but passionate young people are successful? Like uh, beyond just what the, just, just beyond the fact that the culture is supportive of those young people, what, what could I learn if I was trying to bring in young people to my company? What could I learn from the way you guys are doing it? Your onboarding, et cetera. Yeah. Um... So, first of all, I mean, I think it requires tiered positions and a, and a path of growth, I think, is the most important thing. And it's something that we're, we still need to work on ourselves as well. So, offering and targeting um, jobs that are geared in terms of scheduling, time, requirements for UCSB students that fit. We understand this college. We understand what your time is. We understand what you need to learn at this stage in your life. And we're trying to craft positions that, that grow you in that, at that period in your life. Past that, we try to offer employment opportunities to ascend into different positions outside of sales, other different kind of positions, and making sure that the companies understand the basic needs, time requirements of students, and then also offer a path of growth through the company is uh, something that we strive to do better every day and we work on all, all the time. And I think that's the key. Is you don't, it's not a one, one and done. Like, yep. you, it's kind of like people are changing. Expectations of students change every right. year. It's a moving target. And staying in touch with what you know, what's applicable now wouldn't have been applicable, you know, five, six, seven uh, years ago. That's right. And 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 that'll be true in the future. What it, what if you, you know, you hire a lot of young people. I know you, maybe you're not doing as many interviews of young people as you used to do, but you have interviewed a lot of young people. What what is what are some examples, anecdotes that you remember that have stood out from you, stood out to you all these years later of appropriate things young people did to, to stand out from the crowd. What I always say to students is just be different. Like, we interview a lot of people in the course of a day. It's hard to remember anybody really. Mm. Do something significant that helps you stand out so that you're remembered in a positive. For me, it's about vulnerability and sincerity. Like, when you walk into a room and someone's really talking to you and giving it to you real, like, there's the interview you yep. and then the vulnerable yep. you. If you can find a place to find the real vulnerable you and communicate as a person during that interview process. You're going to make a connection with the hiring person. You're going to have a different tear up. Because everybody's going to walk in with the same scripted question that answers in some manner. What you really want to do is try to make a personal connection with people. At least for, some, at least for a company like Page Junction that cares about the culture that we're building. Because the answers to your question are also, I mean, the person that you are is just as important, important as uh, the answers to your question. You want to make sure you vibe with the people that were we're recruiting. I think it's great advice because there's a there's an 
inherent artificiality to that conversation. It's scary. You're sitting yeah. there. I'm sitting here. You're evaluating me. Yeah. I'm young. I'm, I'm, and I think that's that's really good advice. If you can, you're never going to break that paradigm because it is an interview. Sure. Like you're not drinking beers or whatever. Um, but to the extent that you can treat that as a conversation yeah. and less as an interrogation. That's right. Um, while not coming across so super casual that you're laughable. Like if you come in like just too like it's your buddy and you're just hanging out and that's not going to work either. Keep that decorum, keep that professionalism, but don't be afraid to, to be a real person and to show that vulnerability. Professional, sincere, and yeah. the intention. You know, really good advice. That you really want to be do there. Do your homework, for goodness sake. Like, yes, actually, that's a good thing. One of the first things that we always ask is tell me about Pay Junction. And we do this at every level of our, our hiring, mm-hmm. from like high-level executives to everything like sales directors and everything else like that. Yep. And you would be amazed at how many people come in for positions that have not done their homework about the company that they're coming to interview with. Know it up and down. Know it absolutely up and down before you come in. Well, I used to have a product that you could trial for free for 30 days. And it wasn't the first question I'd ask, but I'd say, oh, have you tried, you know, go to a meeting or have you tried? No, but I, I intend to. Yeah. Like, dude, like you want a job here. Like, yeah. And you just told me you're passionate about the company. <laughs> come on. Yeah. Do some homework yeah. up front. Exactly. Uh, does the emergence of cryptocurrency as a popular currency uh, threaten industries that manage fiat money? And do you anticipate the world adopting a current, uh, cryptocurrency in favor of a nation-backed fiat money? Ooh, yeah, like I said, I think we kind of covered that in our, in our last um, kind of line of discussion. Um, don't know where that's going. Uh, but I will tell you this, when it reaches critical mass and our businesses start telling us that we need to accept it, it's... We'll be done like that. You guys will be there. Yeah. yeah so you have your ear to the ground. You're, you know what the what the players are doing that are the originators. Yeah. And when they demand it, you're going to be like codes written. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. So uh, we're in the business of payment facilitation. Visa, Mastercard, or ACH. If it's Bitcoin, Venmo, Zelle, which is the new banking one for the peer-to-peer, whatever it be, that it's critical mass. It's our responsibility to make sure that that's frictionless, accounted for, and like delivered to our clients. So I had a student um, literally, as I was walking in here, asked me if he should short Bitcoin. And, I've all, and I, I mean, it's kind of neat being a, being a professor because I've heard about all these things from the beginning. Like when Ethereum was brand new, yeah. a student brought it to my attention. And what my advice has been pretty consistent. I just say, look, it's so radically risky at this point. It's so uncontrolled. The, the, the extent of fraud is probably pervasive, although yes. we can't prove it. You're just, you're compl- it's like a roulette wheel. You are gambling. Yeah. You might make money. You might lose money. Do you feel different? I mean, I, I just feel like it's too much of the Wild West right now. I mean, without disclosing the name of the CEO I went to dinner with, that's about the really? wrong word. It's, okay. Yeah, it's the Wild West right now. Okay. Yeah. Wild West can be great because there can be opportunities for you, and I think there's ways to mine the miners when it comes to crypto, um, you know, people that are actually doing the mining. But I, I would stay away from trying to short it or, or go long on it or whatever. I personally don't own any. I don't trade in it, so I don't really have a whole lot of uh, opinion right. around it. Right. Okay. So um, I think you did a – an incredible job of your of your time here at UCSB. I love the fact that you said you came in with a with an intention of starting a business. That's right. That's rare. It's becoming more common, but I think it's it's rare. Um, it's more rare than, than than it should be. That's why I love this program. I mean, this entire thing's geared towards nurturing that this type of people. yeah. Well, I, mean, I think intentions. one of the services we provide is just letting students know it's an option. Yep. Like, hey, we're not trying to turn people into entrepreneurs. We're not trying to to turn you away from a profession. But if you feel like you have that in your DNA, like you and I certainly have it, mm. then it's an option. But is there, are there things that you would do differently or maybe phrase it another way? What, what can students, um, other than networking, which we've encouraged them to do already, what else can they do to maximize their time? You get students here, some have two years, some have two months, some have three years. What can they do with the rest of that time? 
I think um, one of the, the greatest um, threats to an entrepreneur is analysis paralysis. Like you have five ideas, you don't know which one's the greatest one, you're afraid to put, dip your toe in the water, and I think it's about like just getting out there and doing it. Minimum viable product, touch it, put it in the market, cut out the piece of paper. I mean, you just got to move and do it because like, um, the greatest kind of block to any great entrepreneur in the beginning is themselves. It's their fear of failure. Right. So um, I would just say uh, get out there and try it all and be ready to pivot. Don't think that your first idea is going to be the right one. I love Guy Kawasaki's Art of the Start. I think the best advice in that book is yep. just start. Just start. And that's his advice. Like, just get started. Yep. I'd assume today, uh, after a class, and, um, you know, well-intentioned, nothing wrong with this question, but he said, I have an idea that I want to pursue once I get funding. No. Dude, pursue your idea now. That's right. And maybe funding will follow, maybe it won't. But just start your... Yeah. There are things you can do right now before you get funding. Do them. You may decide you don't even want to pursue this. It's just fun to do it, too. I mean, just the design, the thought, the process. It's just... Solving problems. It's a rad process. I always think thought of it as like putting a puzzle together, but without having the box that shows you the picture. That's right. So I've got puzzle pieces, but I don't really know what this is supposed to look like at the end. I'm on. Yep. And that's fun. Exactly. Um, So I always... Not always, but I like to ask about mentors, because I'm I'm a big fan of mentors when when students are... um, uh, you know, trying to get through their college, it's not too early to strike up a mentor relationship. Did you have any? And if if, if you didn't really have that um, in your background, are you are you working with with people right now that consider you to be a mentor? You know, um, I had fantastic professors here. I don't think any that were. So there was. I just to be clear, you didn't take my class. I, your class wasn't here, so this wasn't. <laughs> really, there really was no entrepreneur class that was here, like no. really that I, when I was it here. Wasn't. So it was just computer science. So while I had Conheim and all these brilliant, absolutely brilliant computer scientists, I mean that have, I mean, done amazing things, and they taught me technical fundamentals. The entrepreneur piece was something we learned on our own, and unfortunately, I, I can honestly say that we didn't. I didn't really have a mentor. That yep. we were peers, kind of lost through the entrepreneurship together, yep. my partners yep. and I, and we kind of waded through, and we had to become masters of it all ourselves. Um, and that's changed. I mean, we have a very strong mentor program right now. Fantastic, and um, that's what I really love. Like for the um, ribbon cutting for the incubator right. program, and seeing that facility and the ability to nurture that and mentor that was what wasn't here when I was here, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Have you, no, I, I was probably the worst mentor ever when I was an operator because mm. I just felt like I didn't have the time. I didn't want to make the time, whatever. I certainly didn't do a very good job of being a mentor when I was heads down. How about you now? I mean, you're running a company. You've got a lot of responsibilities. Or do you find that you have the time for that? You know, I don't, I don't know if there, I would say that there's like a roster in my phone of people that I'm mentoring, but I try to engage in these type of events as much as possible right. uh, as time allows. Right. And I, I get a lot of um, value out of it. It makes me feel good to try to inspire people to make the leap and have some faith in themselves and kind of uh, give it a try. Yeah. I mean, what's great about being involved with, with folks of this age as well as the folks that are watching this all over the world is a small change in their path at this point can really change their trajectory because they have so much of a trajectory in front of them still. That's right. So it's, it is very gratifying. Yeah. We'll take the last student question. Does PayJunction target business clients who will be using their services more for business-to-business payments rather than consumer-to-business payments, and why? Yeah, good question. Um, we have a mix of both, um, business-to-business and business-to-B2C. Um, more importantly, we try to determine vertical markets where a product fits. So as opposed to trying to be everything for everyone, 
We're very honed at specific mid-market verticals where we tune our application to have operational benefit. We try to understand and speak the language. So, for example, uh, veterinary, medical, auto, some example targets, uh, markets that we do. Our sales staff are trained to speak in their language, right? So we talk in the way that they speak. We understand the, the layout of their business. We understand their operations. We understand the impact of our technology. So as opposed to, like, focusing on B2B or B2C, we try to craft a product that's, that helps a specific vertical and understand that vertical as deeply as we can to penetrate it. Yeah. So I want to end on this question. You, you mentioned earlier that from the very beginning, you and your co-founders wanted to build an organization that would outlive the founders. Hmm. How do you envision that will manifest itself? Do you, have, do you have succession plans in mind? So when somebody's watching this at Pay Junction 15, 20 years from now, yeah. what what is, what is their world going to look like? You know, I hope that the, the next leader of this company comes from within. Uh, I hope that just like Enterprise Rent-A-Car, some of these beautiful private companies that are multi-generational, they rear up um, um, the next generation of people that understand the core values, understand the execution, understand the long-term vision of what we've built, and take it on. So I think a lot of people don't realize the number of private companies that are out there and yeah. they're quite successful. Yeah. I think part of it is companies that are private, it's, it's, it's they're private in, it's in, private in the literal sense yeah, too. Exactly. Like they don't want the, sure. yeah. like, you know, I'll take this video, but um, I'll just say a major uh, CEO of a, of a social media company was grilled today by the Senate. Mm. Like some people, yeah. some people don't want that, yeah. right? And that tends to come from the big IPO, the you know the big money exit, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Sure, um, I've gone down, you know, I've, I've taken companies public. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just comes with different baggage. That's right. Um, but because of that, I think you know, I think most people would be surprised at the number of private companies that they have succession plans. They keep on ticking. Um, they're very good to their employees. In some in some cases, they can be even better than their employee to their employees than their public competitors because they don't have to disclose all that stuff. And I don't mean anything wrong. Yeah. It's just they can spend their money where they want to without somebody <laughs> criticizing that. What, what, what we see on TechCrunch and a lot of the news are the companies that are getting funded and we're running through these PR runs where we're doing a pump so they can sell and building up this mass. And in the background, there's the private companies that are doing the slow, long plays that we're talking about. And both are, are viable and very successful. There's and you lots see of it amazing in, ones in the country. You see it in Europe a lot. That's right. I mean, Europe has had a long legacy of, of these companies that are household names you'd be surprised to, to learn that they're private. Yeah, and listen, some companies you need funding. If you're going to build something that needs right. millions of dollars investment in biotech and you just need the funding, you've got to go get the funding. In computer science and software, from, from, from all of you that are in comp sci here, you can put together a team with uh, very minimal resources and get a minimum vile product into the market and do it yourself. So it just depends what you're doing. It depends on what you want to do, how long you want to do it, and what your personal goals are. You know? Define success and then go after it. Define success. That's right. Great. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.